Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest this week is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London and the author of White Shift, which is, as he tells me now, out in paperback. Eric Kaufman, welcome back to Trigonometry. Delighted to be here again. First in the new year, apparently. Yes, you are. You're the first interview <laughs> we're recording uh, since the new year uh, and since not the first since the election, but the election was very recently. And before we dive into that and some of the th I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to have you back is some of the stuff you've been talking about for quite a while was predictive in terms of what's happened recently and what may happen in the future. But just before we get into that, remind everybody, who are you? How are you where you are? What has been your journey through life? Yeah, so I'm a professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London. I've um, studied questions of nationalism, particularly majority ethnic groups. So when we talk about white majorities, that's the kind of thing that I've been studying for over 20 years. And I think that sort of a um, uh, politics has become increasingly important, uh, and particularly with the post-2014 populist wave. So a lot of the elections since 2014, I think, have been characterized by the rise of this new form of populism uh, and also by polarization. So both of these phenomena, populism and polarization, are important. The other thing I would say is I've also done a lot of work on the history of the cultural left going back into the 19th century. And I think that's another part of the story which is really important, which is how the cultural left has changed over time and become now a dominant force in the culture and what that's doing to our politics. So I'm kind of interested in the intersection of the, if you like, the cultural left and this new uh, majority group nationalism and how these two things are interacting. And the polarization that comes from that. Absolutely, yeah. And so they feed off each other, right? Mm. So the populism is in some ways caused by the success of the cultural left, which then in turn reacts to the success of populism. And you get this you know, polarization in the culture and also increasingly in, in electoral politics. Sounds like a justification for Nazism. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, right. anyway, Eric. But um, so we, we mentioned about um, the election. Right. So let's start there. Uh, what do you think happened? And why is it that the left still can't admit that they lost? Well, exactly. So I think this election is a perfect example in Britain um, of what I'm talking about, which is the rise of cultural conflicts uh, to prominence instead of the old left versus right economic. I'm not saying that's gone, but that issue of redistribution versus free markets, which was so big with Reagan and Thatcher, is increasingly being superseded by questions around identity, immigration, Brexit, and so forth. And we saw in this election that uh, the Conservative Party was able to consolidate that sort of Brexit vote around itself, uh, including a lot of Brexit voters who were to the left economically historically come from labor voting families, they happen to live in the kind of constituencies you need to win in order to swing, because most of the constituencies in England and Wales are leave voting constituencies. So in a way, the rise of this cultural politics, the way the conservatives were able to speak to that Brexit voting group allowed them to win this election. Since then, of course, as you mentioned, yeah, what has been the left reaction? Has it been reflective, <laughs> right? And, and because, because in a way, the the proper reaction would be to say, given the electoral map, given the seats, the fact most seats are leave voting seats, the fact that you know we can pile up votes in the college towns and in London, and we're never going to win an election. So the reality is we should be focusing on winning back those seats in the North and Midlands, which means we have to at least make some pitch to the culturally conservative left-wing voter. 
That hasn't happened. Instead, what there's been is this kind of doubling down and this belief that somehow, well, now that Brexit is gone, uh, that issue's out, out of the way. We can get back to our same old message and then we'll get these people back. Because, yeah, okay, Brexit was an anomaly. It was a Brexit election. With that out of the way, uh, you heard John McDonnell after the election. That was his sort of post-mortem. Um, my view is that's wrong-headed, that, that what's happened is much deeper than this, that, that what has occurred... I mean, if we take a step back and we go to the Brexit vote, what you could see is that uh, a lot of longtime Labour voters who voted Brexit were a specific kind of voter. They didn't tend to vote very often. They had low interest in politics. Very often are less educated. That is a key group of voters, the kind of less educated, less participatory Labour voter for the Brexit vote. So a lot of them voted Leave. What's happened, I think, in the last, in 2017, Corbyn was still able to do, to do reasonably well because these low information voters had not yet twigged to make the association between labor and kind of anti-Brexit mm. uh, and, and kind of pro-immigration and some of these things which they reflexively oppose. But now, by 2019, the penny had dropped and they came to view them as, oh, they're trying to, to stop Brexit and the other guys actually want to get Brexit done. So I think that... It takes longer for the low information voter uh, to kind of to make this equation. We're in the kind of political sphere. We, we, we we're on Twitter, whatever. So we think, how could anybody not make the association between labor and being sort of anti-Brexit? However, it does take longer for low information voters. And the same thing happened in the U.S. Um, Obama's presidency actually was an important symbol for a certain kind of low information white voter, often, you know, in many cases, a racist voter who didn't realize where the Democrats were on these issues. And I'm not saying that's, I don't endorse that by any means, but for some voters, the cues, uh, the kind of ordinary party cues, which are sophisticated, et cetera, will go over their heads. So, and I think what's happened now is these voters have turned and it's going to be very hard for them to go back into the labor column unless labor makes an offer like the Danish Social Democrats, which is more conservative on, on the issues these voters care about culturally. Which are? Uh, which would be Brexit, which would be immigration in particular, identity um, issues, national identity, patriotism. So these sorts of questions, uh, perhaps security but those sorts of questions, I think, labor is very uncomfortable with. I mm -hmm. think uh, David Goodhart, and I know Matt Goodwin's mentioned this, has mentioned that you know a lot of social democratic parties or left parties are very uncomfortable moving to the right on culture, uh, whereas a lot of conservative parties are more comfortable moving left on economics. That's more true, especially if you look at Johnson, moved left in terms of the minimum wage and spending on the NHS and a number of these issues, he, a deficit, et cetera, he's really broken with Thatcherite orthodoxy relatively easily, and that's been accepted. Mm. Um, it's been a little bit harder going in the United States. Trump has done some of that on Social Security and the deficit. He hasn't gone the full distance in terms of infrastructure spending and minimum wage, but he's gone part of the way. That sort of gets to that point that it's easier for the right to move left on economics than the left to move right on culture, which was Goodhart's point. And, and that kind of, I think, also speaks to these questions of uh, wokeness and political correctness, which are caging in the left, preventing it perhaps from moving to an area where, you know, in terms of their own self-interest, they probably do need to move, um, which is in a, to a more conservative position on culture. It's in, sorry. No, no, I was just yeah. going to say, because that is the point. Uh, uh, David Goodhart raised it. Matt Goodwin raised it, saying, right. you know, that it's very difficult 
for the left as they are now to move to a more socially conservative point of view. And I just would like to know why do you think that is? Well, it's mainly because the sort of activist cadres are influenced by the intellectual currents in the universities where there's been something called the cultural turn of the left since the 60s, which is away from class and away from this idea of the working class and historical materialism and these sort of Marxist ideas towards uh, the new identity politics, race, gender, more recently sexuality, that these kinds of tropes have become more important. So those issues are their sacred issues now for the intellectuals and who are influential at the upper layers and amongst activists, right? So that then, if that's what's motivating these people to work for the party, to come into the party, the last, you know, they will die on this hill before they kind of give up those, those aims. Um, and so that simply locks the party in and prevents it from essentially backing off on those issues. So it's really, there. That's just, this is an example of where People always say, well, wokeness, political correctness, it's a storm in a teacup on campus. Actually, it has very far-reaching effects when it percolates down into uh, outside the campus. So one of the examples is left-wing parties. If it constrains their ability, mm. right, to, to move rationally in a, in a political marketing space towards where the market is, then, <laughs> right, it's, it's, then you've got a problem, right? And, yeah. and, and I think that it's very hard for parties to overcome. The Scandinavian uh, left has been able to do it better, partly because I think because those are smaller societies where the polarization is less extreme. And I think there's more of a sense that, well, actually, we have to listen to our base a little bit more and, and so on. But I, th but I think in, in Anglo-American societies, there is much more of a disconnect between the kind of elite metropolitan um, group on the left who are influenced by these intellectual currents, the new left, etc., and what the voters want. So what you're really saying is they've been captured by this activist yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not just captured by activists who have an agenda, but it's also what's really important about the, the wokeness is that the ability to intimidate, right? So it's not just that a whole bunch of people believe these ideas. It's also that they can enforce mm. a code, uh, a taboo, uh, that you know, if you decide to challenge that taboo. I mean, Len McCluskey did this a little bit talking about immigration just prior to the election, the, the union uh, leader here. Um, and you know, that is something that you're going to get hauled over the coals for, attacked as a racist for. Well, do you want to take that risk? It's very unpleasant. Um, so again, this ability to wield taboos is a kind of force multiplier for mm. uh, the new left. And so it's not just the power of their ideas, but it's the, it's the power they hold over reputations and over, the, um, over public morality that allows them to expand their power. But what that does is it sort of locks in the, the left. And so we, I think Matt Goodwin tweeted um, a whole series of countries in Western Europe where the, the left, the main left-wing party has had its worst result ever, you know, since the 30s. I mean, the, the same results that we see for labor occurring in, in a whole range of, of, of European countries. And, and that's, again, as a result of this, I think, anyway, inability to move right, if you like, on culture. Uh, the the left-wing agenda economically is reasonably popular. That's, mm. Not, mm. that's not the problem. It's more the, um, the fact that they are locked in by these taboos or by the new left belief in, in, in some of these new left um, shibboleths. So they're just unable to adapt.
and and where that goes will be very interesting. Before we dive into that, yeah, which yeah. is political correctness, which is right. an area that you've been researching, I wanted to pick up a couple of things. Like, I mean, in terms of moving the right, moving left on economics, like mm. I looked at my the news websites this morning, and there's something. There's a government minister talking about how some kind of rail company will be nationalized immediately. And I literally thought I'd woken up in a Ray Bradbury <laughs> right. novel and someone stepped on a butterfly. You know what I mean? Like, it, it seems a very smooth process for, for the right to move left on economics. That seems to, they don't seem to have a problem losing their base because their base is now the socially conservative, largely working class people, you might say. Yeah, and I think the difference is that there isn't, you know, if, if for the right to move left on economics doesn't, break a taboo as much. You know, it, it doesn't mean you're going to be attacked as a morally deficient a monster, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so that makes a difference, right? Yeah. And you're not going to be shamed. Uh, and it's this whole sort of shaming um, enforcement of, of policing of virtue, policing of language, all these sorts of things which are identified more with that left side of the ledger, which, which don't exist as much on the right. Now, of course, there are entrenched interests so that in the United States, for example, in the Congress, uh, there are still a lot of members who, who grew up on Reagan and, and Ayn Rand and, and, and believe <laughs> in free money. So, so there, it, it's harder to, you know, for example, to raise taxes or to, to, to redistribute would be a, a harder road to hoe. Hmm. I think there because of the, the, you know, these, these sort of libertarian ideas probably are more entrenched. But I, I do think they, moving away from that doesn't quite carry the same sting, the same stigma, I guess, that someone on the left moving right on culture would. And before Francis takes us into the yeah. political correctness, <laughs> sure. I just wanted to clarify, uh, because it's it's a very triggering term for some people when you talk about low information voters. Of course. Mm -hmm. You're not using that in a derogatory sense. Uh, and by this point, all the people who've been offended by it, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. so we can just talk to, talk to the rest of them. But you're not you're not saying those are bad people. What no, you, no. What you're saying is these are people who are politically not very active. They right. may not read the Times every single day and whatever. Uh, yes, doesn't necessarily mean their opinions are any less. No, no, their opinions are equally valid, but maybe they pay less attention mm. to the warp and weft of, of politics. They're not uh, in the Westminster bubble, then you know. So maybe I mean in a way that's a good thing. Uh, it is correlated with not having a degree, for example, but it's not a hard and fast. So there are people with degrees who are not interested in politics and vice versa. Um, and I think what's occurred, you know, if we, there's a long U.S. political science literature on this that, you know, essentially if you looked in the 1970s and 80s at the states and you categorized them by how liberal or conservative their electorates were on one axis and then whether they voted Democrat or Republican on the other, there was no relationship at all, right? So most, really? people, most people were conservative and they were Democrat uh, by partisanship. Uh, there just wasn't this link between ideology and party, which we think of so automatically because we, again, we think in these ideological terms. A lot of voters don't. The party is one thing. It's something you get from maybe from your parents or friends, and then the ideology is just an inchoate bunch of views that you've kind of come to. Um, what's occurred in the U.S., of course, is now if you take state ideology and partisanship, it's like a straight line, you know, 0.9 correlation. Mm. So it just dramatically changed. And that's why you get this polarization. So those sorts of processes, I think, were occurring here too, where the kind of more, uh, you know, less participatory voter who didn't necessarily understand which ideology went with which party, th that equation is starting to be made more and more, particularly on these kind of cultural issues. And as that happens, actually it locks in 
a sort of more deeply rooted partisanship amongst, say, conservative voters, or if you're liberal-minded, moving towards the, um, the, you know, towards the left. Although the liberal-minded voters, because they tend to have higher education, are more likely to have already made that move, right? So to to be able to identify which party represents which ideology, basic stuff, but that alignment of ideology and, and, and voting is very important in explaining some of the patterns we see, particularly the polarization. That's very interesting. And yeah. you're talking about polarization. And yeah. one of the factors that has really contributed to polarization is uh, political correctness. Now, I suppose a counter argument to that would be, Eric, what's wrong with political correctness? <laughs> right. Doesn't it mean that I just not allowed any more to hurl racial epithets of, pe- of uh, people outside of in my white van, you know, isn't that... What Your poli- comedy career is over. Right, right, right. <laughs> no. well, isn't that what political correctness is? Well, I think as you and I probably know, the devil is always in the details. Mm. That if political correctness means don't call a black person the N-word, you know, we're all for political correctness. It's when you define racism in an expansive way, right? Mm. So it's it's when you say, um, if you're in class reading from a 19th century text where someone used the N-word, that you are essentially the same thing as using the N-word yourself. I mean, that... That's kind of ridiculousness of expanding. Mm. Or when you say, if you're against affirmative action, you are as bad as someone in the Jim Crow South. You know, so that, <laughs> that, that's sort of. <laughs> so that's really, I think, what we mean by mm. political correctness is uh, expanding the overreach of, is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, overreach, sort of this this elasticity and bending of what Orwell said. You know, two plus two equals five, and not only will you agree to that, but you will be made to believe it. I mean, this essential when the meaning of words becomes political and not. Uh, what ordinary people, how they categorize things in a social scientific way, which is based on, you know, the scientific method, which is to do with measurement and clusters of of differences. And that's how we categorize the world. If it's instead is about, no, this is, a, racism is what I say it is, uh, right? So, so this is, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but, but what this then means is the expansion of, of concepts like harm and racism and sexism and so on uh, means that, more and more, uh, you know, more and more people are, you know, we could talk about British politics, for example, if you say that the, this whole issue about the Windrush, um, which was about essentially administrative error and not, you know, uh, mess ups at the home office, but which was not racially motivated, but which subsequently um, people like Clive Lewis and Afua Hirsch and none of these commentators are, are very quick to try and identify that as racism, right? So this broad brush approach, but what that does actually is it, there's been about four experiments which show quite clearly, uh, and, and there's, you know, I've, I've actually done one of these studies myself, whereas if you take the same statement and you call it racist, you will get a blowback in, uh, for, uh, in public opinion. People react negatively to that, particularly mm. conservative type voters. Um, we know from the public opinion research, for example, that you know, most white Trump voters are actually fairly warm towards African Americans and Hispanics. Um, you know, it's it's not that they are particularly, they're not cool towards those groups. They're just not as cool towards white people as white liberals are. That's the difference, right? So, uh, so. Are you saying white liberals have got a problem with white people, Eric? Cancel the interviews. <laughs> Done. Right. So what, what, but what, this is fascinating because this is the reason we love talking to you and Matt and, and other people because you've actually done work on this. You're not right. just 
talking about it on Twitter. You've actually done the research. And what you're really saying is that if you expand these concepts of harm done by words, what that creates is pushback from people who go, fuck you, I'm not racist. You know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, And and that then creates the polarization that we see, which then leads to election results that we see. Is that that what you're saying? Yes, yes. So you get two things. Like in the Trump case, um, hostility to political correctness was second. I mean, in the work I've done on both the primary, Republican primary vote, uh, but also the switchers in the general election, that this hostility to political correctness, next to views, next to wanting immigration controlled and reduced, that seemed to be the second most important factor. Um, that's, it, just it, pause there. I mean, yeah, that, that's I mean, incredible. It, it is a massive. It's, it's, now, that it's, is incredible. That yeah. People care about restriction of speech. Right. And being mislabeled as yes. something they're not, almost as much enough to that, for that to be the primary issue in their choice for the leader of the free world, as they say. Right. That is quite an incredible thing. Yeah, it, it is an incredible thing. And it has, you know, and there's been a number of experiments where I think in one case they, um, they were talking about taking down Confederate statues mm. or something, and they said that this, this is a bad policy. And then the next time, time they said, well, this is, this, we don't want this policy because it's racist, um, or, or maybe the wall was the, was the example. And in all these cases, you could see that when they threw the term racist in there, there was a lot more resistance to to the statement, right? So and, and uh, so so a number of these experiments have kind of found that there's this direct reaction um, amongst a, a chunk of voters. Another paper that I'm involved in now with some other people. They've done most of the work. Yeah, don't give them any credit. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> They've done most of the work, uh, yeah, yeah, but we'll just call I, them I, other yeah. people. Forget but about but um, it was really me. about this. It was a, a sort of an example where, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, the kind of very woke um, uh, U.S. Democratic candidate, and we had the statement saying, you know, if my kid wore a hoodie and, and was black, he would be, you know, arrested. And it's only the fact my kid is white skinned that he. You know. So we had this sort of paragraph in there. Um, and you can see the support for Gillibrand amongst people who read that paragraph simply dropped, you know, quite dramatically compared to when they didn't have that same wording. And again, it's an example of this reactivity that this sort of um, expanded use of the term racism invokes in people. Now, in the in the election here, uh, again, I don't have any. I'm not going to. I always want to see the data and the research, so I can't say this for sure, but there is a, certainly a perception that there was among some voters this idea that the Labour Party in some ways looked down on them and thought of them as being a bit racist for voting for Brexit. Again, we, we need to see the data. I don't want to jump ahead of the data, but uh, if that was the case, that would be another example of this phenomenon where there is this blowback effect from political correctness. And of course, what happens is if, if populists then are successful, you, you get a, a sort of reaction on the other side, which is like, oh my God, um, these people are, Trump is so awful, and, and so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be even more opposed to these people and vilify, um, this government or Trump or Johnson or somebody as a monster, and so you actually get this back and forth. So in the last European elections, the 2019 European elections, you could see both the populist right parties increasing, but also some of the kind of more cultural left doing well. The green, now of course green also involves obviously the environment, which is a somewhat separate question. But there is also a kind of, I think, a reaction to the rise of the populist right on the cultural left as well in the college towns and some of the larger cities that have larger professional populations. So you're kind of seeing this uh, dialectic going on, which is sort of polarizing 
Um, but another example of particularly this question of political correctness impacting on populism really has to do with the question of immigration, right? So if, if restricting immigration is defined as racism, um, there, or, or if, for example, deporting people who are in the country illegal is defined as racism, then all of a sudden that, that is, is a massive shift. So a voter, you know, a party cannot go, like the Democratic Party could not talk about enforcing the border anymore if that is now seen as a racist thing. What does that do? Well, it emboldens, you know, it allows market share for somebody who is going to talk about this problem. So in the case of um, Sweden, for example, uh, the only, the, the two main parties were kind of agreed that we're not going to talk about reducing immigration levels because that would be kind of racist. And this is an example of the power of politically correct norms to constrain the discourse, what we call the Overton window of acceptable debate, mm. and to take certain questions off the table of de democratic contestation. Well, what that does is it's, uh, I think I may have used this metaphor last time of the Soviet department store where it's one pair of pants, um, we're only going to sell this style and that's it. Okay, well then people want actually a range of other things. They want jeans, etc. So the black market will pop up to provide uh, what the mainstream won't provide. And that's exactly what the Sweden Democrats were. They were kind of a black market party. They provided the opposition to immigration and, and lo and behold, they kind of shot up to 25%. I don't know where they're at now. They're very high again. Um, but that's an example of how this political correctness, the, the downstream effect of it was to create a marketplace for the populist right uh, by shutting out the mainstream parties because they couldn't cross the red lines, right? Or, or another example would be um, Tommy Robinson and the English Defense League. You know, if you know, the local authorities had dealt with the Asian grooming scandal as normal local authorities should, it would never have expanded into this big issue. But because of political correctness, because it was, it happened to be uh, Asians, which is, you know, most Asians were just not involved. I and mean, we're talking about a very small number of people here. But the fact that they happened to be uh, Muslim Asians was something that made this very difficult to address by these local authorities, which then meant the problem kind of metastasized out of control and then opened up space for Robinson and others to exploit, right? So again, if you were going to explain the rise of Tommy Robinson, it's very hard to do that, I believe, without political correctness. Political correctness is really oxygen to that kind of a figure. So if we're going to, we can't just think of political correctness as something that happens on campus and restricts uh, somebody from speaking on the campus. It has these very important kind of downstream effects, which are leading to populism and polarization. And I think that's kind of one of the key messages of my book, too, is to say, well, we have to look at how these things interact uh, in the round. Yeah, it's a great book, yeah. and it, you've you've talked about a, a lot of the stuff that's since happened, which right. is why we're delighted to have you on. Oh, so I just want to make it clear, and so um, I'm a little bit slower than everybody else in the room. So True. Yep, I, <laughs> I just want to. So calling someone racist doesn't persuade you to vote for them. <laughs> is that is that is that correct? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Lovely to know. And so what you're essentially saying is that uh, the issues of freedom of speech and political correctness are linked. And what you have with political correctness, once it sort of grows out of control, is it affects people's ability to express themselves, which doesn't it sort of give credence and embolden unpleasant views because it gives them a certain glamour that they never had before. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think because once you kind of debase the currency of racism, uh, then somebody who genuinely is a racist can say, well, you know, they're calling um, you racist for wearing a Chinese prom dress and they're calling me racist. Well, hey, we're, we're the same. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it kind of makes it impossible to make what are actually very important distinctions, right? Because there really are nasty racists out there that we need to be able to, to call out. And even within an individual like Donald Trump, some of the things he says really are, are, you know, something like insinuating that Mexicans are rapists is an awful racist thing to say, mm. whereas talking about a wall is not. And yet those two things are completely meshed together in this, this narrative of, you know, like the wall is racist and deporting people is racist. Well, no, actually it isn't. But saying Mexicans are racist is. We have to be able to kind of make those fine distinctions. And that becomes impossible when this charge is being lobbied, uh, being lobbed uh, time and time again. So just, yeah, I, I, and... and yeah. So the free speech question, of course, is, you know, that is a sort of separate arm. So all of these kind of effects, one is that polarization is a result of political correctness. But another effect, of course, is, um, you know, the, the effect on free speech, say, in universities or in comedy, as you guys are probably mm. familiar with. Mm. Um, and, and how do you tackle this, this issue of free speech on campus? Because it seems to have been, so going back to when we were at university, which was the turn of the century, which makes us sound right. incredibly old. I don't remember that being as much of an issue, but it seems to, in your own words, metastasize and it's got worse. How do we tackle that so we have balance, so we have two sides of people discussing, debating? Well, I mean, I actually, and and, and I, you know, people have different views on this. I think this is not as new as people think that in the, I, when I was at the university, this kind of shows my age, this is kind of in the early 90s, late 80s period, Mm. that... A lot of the same kind of things were going on, perhaps at a smaller scale. There wasn't social media, but there was speech codes. There was political correctness. There was a lot of these. It's just, just, I think what's happening now is to some degree, to some degree, there is more of a challenge to these things. Mm. And that's bringing out more of a, a reaction. To some degree, the social media, I think there was some good work by Zach Goldberg, who's in the United States, who shows that the rise of online uh, news services like BuzzFeed and Vox, but also... Um, <laughs> Quality but, yeah, journalism, right. Eric. <laughs> but also social media, it doesn't explain the rise of the populist right, but it does a pretty good job in terms of the, the great awakening, to use Matthew Iglesias' term. Mm. This kind of sudden emergence of this very radical um, cultural left uh, sensibility. Now, how, how do you address that on campus, right? Okay, so the question is, you have the Heterodox Academy, you have people... In you know on the internet, the Jordan Petersons of this world, and they are creating a counterculture, which, which I think is very important. But ultimately, I don't think that's going to be able to penetrate these institutions because the institutions are actually captured. Now, speaking in terms of the universities, which I know well, you know most people are perfectly nice and rational and normal. You have a small group of very committed, very highly networked, radical authoritarian uh, leftists, and they. Are, are very important because they also know how to exploit the procedures and the policies of the university uh, to to their advantage to say shut down speakers to get people fired to you know and and I've locked horns with these people on number number of occasions I've had sort of I think I'm on my third internal investigation. <laughs> right. so, kind of, um, so yeah, I mean they, they, what what they try and do is to. Um, hit you with a trumped up charge, let's say racism or sexism. And in the policy, it says, you know, we're not, you know, we want an environment that is safe for people and, and no one's going to be discriminated. 
and against on the basis of race and sex. And they say, look, you know, he, he, whatever, he, see, maybe he read out from a, from a, a paragraph that, that had the N word on it. And therefore he is in the same category as, um, the racist that you mention in your policies. And therefore he must be removed from the university or, 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 or maybe that there's a speaker who shouldn't be allowed in, right? So it's that twisting of the meaning of words. Uh, increasingly, my view is that the only way to tackle this is going to be to actually have more government regulation of these sectors in terms of specifying in very, very fine detail what the meaning of words is, what what the meaning of racism is. So if someone actually does call somebody the N-word in, in class, then yes, that is that is an offense which, um, you know, and, and there's no way free speech trumps that. But on the other hand, if somebody is, uh, you know, in a nuanced way reading a passage or if they are, you know, ex expressing a view on Brexit or whatever, in class, then that cannot be interpreted and stretched into meaning they violated college policy. So this is going to require very kind of targeted forensic policies from governments, actually, I think, in order to what this is about is it is not about, you know, and of course, I, I know some liberals who would say, uh, you know, some real liberals who would say, well, um, you know, institutions have to have autonomy. Isn't it illiberal when we get the government involved? The problem with that reasoning is that if you have a kind of a vigilante or a kind of a spontaneous form of authoritarianism that is kind of uh, emerges in a sort of not disorganized but sort of peer-to-peer -peer way, it's not an official institution that marches in and takes over the university, but it might be a network that self-organizes and is able to exert power that way uh, over who gets invited in over the content of the curriculum, et cetera, and, and can essentially lobby and pressure and coerce the university into doing its bidding. So what you then actually need to do is you have to deal with this spontaneous authoritarianism that's taken root, and you have to actually marginalize it. And that's actually going to create a freer, more liberal university. So it is actually about increasing the, furthering the aims of liberalism. You're not actually constricting liberalism through government action. We're not there yet, but I think that is increasingly going to have to happen because I don't think that simply setting up an association of people who support free speech and, and, and so on is, is going to do it because when you have the institutions that are essentially control, not control, but where the red lines of what you're allowed to talk about and, and are essentially policed by a sort of self-organizing network. Um, you have to find a way of actually getting at that very small but very influential network and to, to minimize their influence. So I think we're kind of going to need more intelligent targeted strategies that are kind of within institutions and not just general debates, which are important. The culture is still important, but it's not going to, we're not going to get the change we need un unless we are actually able to apply more targeted policy tools. And actually on that very subject, the question I was going to ask you is, I was hopeful, maybe just because it was yes. Christmas and New Year, and I thought, <laughs> it's a new year, maybe things will change, but <laughs> that now that, you know, the Boris Johnson government has an incredibly strong mandate uh, from the public, the <coughs> right. huge majority for a, for a party that's been in power for nine years now, or 10 years almost, um, is there any evidence that you know, the overwhelming victory of, of his party and the, the platform that he's stood on is going to get people to go, okay, well, you know, like with Brexit, most people now accept that Brexit is going to happen, right? Right. Is there a sense in which 
elections like that, election results like that, will actually potentially reduce polarization as people are given a kind of wake-up call that going so far off the deep end uh, isn't going to work. Is there any evidence for that? Because I was kind of hopeful that might happen. Well, yeah, it's I'm certainly no. Face. I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't mate, think it's called this... Christmas sherry that you've been drinking. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think it's leading to any rethink on the other side. No. Really? And, and no, I really don't think it has. I think that, uh, and certainly not. I mean, if you take the intellectual heart of, you know, the cultural left, which is mm. in the culture uh, industries, including university, there's not going to be much. You know, that election is not going to change many minds. Now, there are. Really? Certain, well, there are certainly a lot of center-left people mm. in academia who didn't like Corbyn, and they, of course, are saying, well, look, you know, we've been vindicated, and they're right. So they might say, well, what we need to do is move in a Blairite direction. Some might say that. Um, but, of course, there are also a lot of, kind of Corbyn You can't invade Iraq every you know, 10 years, man. Come no, on. no, no. <laughs> but, but, but you uh, can blow up an Iranian <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but... but um, <laughs> No, I think, however, what might be an opportunity is that there are figures in the government. Um, you know, Munir Amiraz might be one. Who Former do, guest of trigonometry. Absolutely. Who, who, who do get this issue. They get the importance of kind of having a readjustment in the culture, right? And, and sort of reining in this, this excess that's been going on. Um, the problem, in a way, is that the senior, I think there is a generational divide, so that the senior Tory uh, people in the, in the conservative government are still in the old kind of Thatcherite mold, and they're still mainly concerned about things like Brexit and, and you know, economic free trade and things like that. So they're, they're, their focus is very much still on high politics and, and, and economics. Mm. Um, it's the younger... Uh, people within the party who I think get the issue much more. Um, and you can actually see that in survey data on, if you look at people under 30 or particularly under 25, you know, political co correctness is a much bigger concern for them than it is for people who are kind of over 55. You know, for, I mean, yes, those, the over 55s are against political correctness, but they don't really care that much about it as an issue. It's not a major thing. Whereas amongst the younger people who, who are against political correctness, uh, it's a very, very, it's like one of their most highest issues. Mm. I think that kind of shows you where this culture conflict is much more salient to the kind of under 30 population. Maybe because they're online more, maybe because they see it more in, in their institutions. And I think the question in this government will be whether those younger uh, voices actually are, have an influence or not in, in setting policy. And, and, and it's really individual. Some people they really get the issue and some, it, it just completely goes over their head. They, the only, when they think of universities, all they think about is, oh, we've got to reduce the number of people going to university and uh, it's costing a lot of money. I mean, that's, that's the extent of their worldview rather than maybe we can actually enact some reforms to improve uh, some of the, the, the quality of some of the issues that, that people are concerned about. And Eric, aren't we actually in quite a dangerous situation? Because we've got these two polarized camps most people are with, you know, the sort of the Boris Johnson model, anti-PC. <coughs> We've got the left who are sort of, you know, digging down and not really engaging or listening. And effectively, what we've got is an opposition that are useless and provide no real opposition. And isn't that a dangerous place to be in politically? It is a dangerous place because what happens if the conservatives bungle things? You mm. know, they mess mm. up on the NHS or they aren't you know, maybe economically they're pursuing austerity or whatever it is. Mm. You do need to have an opposition that 
is able to credibly threaten them in power. So yeah, I think this is another casualty, really, uh, of political correctness, that if that hamstrings the Labour Party and makes them unelectable for a generation, then some very real policy concerns which they bring to the table are going to go unaddressed. Um, and there's just isn't going to be the, um, you know, the Tories' feet isn't going to be held to the fire on some of these, these, these questions as effectively. So that's, again, another of the downstream effects of this uh, quite pernicious ideology. Well, that's why yeah. people always talk to us about, like, why are you constantly going on about what's wrong with the left? It's because we, like Francis is old school lefty. I'm very right. much in the center. We need a strong opposition. That's right. We yeah. need an opposition that can challenge this government and potentially once this government gets old and tired and whatever to replace them. Right. right. And, and have a sensible platform which they offer to the public. But uh, it worries me what you're saying, because, you know, as I said, I was very hopeful that um, people might start to wake up. I really, I really was. I, I, re I thought, you know, hey, it's 2020. The election's over. People might go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, well, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see the U.S. election. in. This is what I was going to take. Yeah, because to, yeah. because. What you, in, you see is in the Democratic primary, the, the kind of wokeness has got some power. It, you know, some of these radical new um, candidate Congress people and, and some of the candidates, Gillibrand, for example, and Beto O'Rourke, and some of these people, a lot of them are, are you know, trotting out issues like white privilege and reparations and, and so on. Um, so you can see a situation, if all of these candidates sign up to reparations, for example, that could make the Democrats unelectable, mm. right? If they have to tip their hat to that. Now, they have still got some moderate candidates, Joe Biden, and to some extent, um, Sand, Bernie Sanders as well. So these, at least moderate on the culture issues, if, and those candidates are doing well, one of the reasons is the African American vote, which is actually a moderating influence because they're less politically correct and they're less likely to go for this new style of politics. So Biden may get in on the strength of that vote. Uh, and, and again, that gets to a lot of this survey data showing, you know, white liberals are much more likely to say that the reason blacks can't get ahead is racism, that, that <laughs> diversity, uh, you know, diversity. They know is better than black people. Right, right. right. Can't so, get ahead. So, yeah. so kind of much more than black people. So, it's sort of, but, but there is still that old, you know, older uh, Democrats and black Democrats are still there to kind of more or less provide a moderating mm -hmm. force. And, and so it may be that Biden squeaks through. And as the nominee. As the nominee, in which mm -hmm. case I think he's got a very good chance of beating Trump. But if, let's say, they, they you know, if, the, if it's Elizabeth Warren or if it were to be one of these other candidates, again, because of that politically correct pressure to be woke, that could make the Democrats unelectable. And then you could get, again, Another, you know, another four years of Trump. What does that mean? I mean, with all kinds of, you know, attendant risks of what's going to happen in foreign policy, and, and you know, so so. All I'm saying is, again, it's a version of the same problem where this and and in the context of all these left-wing European parties that are having their worst results, you know, ever. Um, you know, and one major reason for that is that inability to shift to where the voters are because of these artificial barriers laid down by an ideology, which is the same political correct ideology you talk about. I'm curious that you, you make this point that, that you think Joe Biden would have a good chance, because I think in terms of <coughs> his platform, he's certainly, right. but I've been watching him. I mean, 
I'm not sure he's still all there. Right. Well, that's the knock against him. But, <laughs> but I, it's hard to say. I know. Yeah, no, I, I don't mean that as an unkind yeah. thing. And the way you've laughed at it now makes it seem really unkind. I just, I think he's kind of at that point where he needs to be with his grandkids. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Well, Boy, well you might be right. He's pretty much getting to the point where he's certainly intellectually he's dribbling. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm not, I don't have a firm view on, on how serious this is. People have said, well, he's had a lifelong stutter. Um, he's always been a, a bit bum, of a bumbler in terms of... Mm. Ver- yeah. So I don't know if this is just sort of... It's not a strong sales pitch. It's not a strong sales pitch. No. <laughs> I've always but, been a bit of a bumbler. <laughs> yeah, Vote yeah. for president. Right. Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> when a- you come up against Kim Jong-un, you want a bumbler. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. That's right, right. right. But yeah, so maybe his... Someone mentioned that, you know, who, regardless of who wins this election, the key person to look out for is the vice presidents because they're just like a heart attack away from yeah. taking office. Right. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Maybe it'll be the vice president. Then, mm. and do you think Trump's going to win? Uh, I, th- I mean, it's uh, sorry, it's a horrible. It's a question. horrible question. I mean, I think if Biden gets in, I, I think Biden's got a very good chance to win. Uh, but I think other the other candidates, no, I don't think they have. Why do you chance. think he has a strong chance to win, Eric? Just because he's he doesn't trigger the Trump base in the same way as the other candidates. Well, right. tr- Sanders and, and Biden, I don't think, trigger the Trump base as much as, mm. as the other candidates do, who are more on that woke spectrum, right? Uh, not all of them. Not I mean, an Andrew, Andrew Yang. Andrew, Yang. Not an Andrew, Andrew Yang, right. right. Yeah. Andrew Yang, but he's not, he doesn't have, have a chance. Um, mm. Yeah, obviously, if he was the nominee, yes. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, so, Do you I think, think he could uh, beat Trump if he was the nominee? Uh, Yang might, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because he'd have the Democrats behind him, and he has appeal amongst Republicans. Mm. But you know, he's not going to be the nominee. Um, yeah. Why not? He's just—he's nowhere in the oh, in the polls. Um, yeah. But uh, I think with Biden, he—he he is more of a kind of unifier. He's seen as more not somebody who is as hostile. Doesn't he's not somebody who's likely to think that you know all Republican voters are are a bunch of deplorables, right? Mm-hmm. So he 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 doesn't kind of. I don't think he awakens the kind of hostility that a Hillary Clinton would or, 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 or that an Elizabeth Warren or, um, a Beto would, you know. I think it's a different type of beast. So I think he actually has that potential to be, I won't say a unifier, but more in the Obama mold, more, um, somebody who is going to be less offensive to, uh, to the, that kind of voter. And that's why I think, th- you know, they would be well advised to, to select him and they may well select him simply given the, Dynamics of the different primaries that, you know, particularly the more African American heavy states like South Carolina are likely to support him. So he's very popular with African Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, he is, and 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 with older voters uh, generally. So I think that, and this is partly a legacy of you know he was with Obama, uh, but also he's you know he's a long-standing fixture, and I think the African American vote is kind of more stable in terms of uh, party loyalties and, and and personal loyalties, and so that. But we'll see. I mean, the race has still got a lot of people in it, and the progressive vote is is sort of scattered amongst a bunch of candidates. So as that consolidates, it's always possible that it could consolidate massively behind, say, Warren or or another candidate. Um, I don't think Buttigieg is likely to get it, make make it through, even though I don't mind his policy offer. But I think that. Um, 
The real risk, I think, for the Democrats is if, if Warren, if, if the progressive vote swings behind Warren and she gets the nomination, I think then they're in trouble. I would, I would then bet on Trump. Do you not think her Cherokee heritage will save her? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> One over 2020? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I just, I, I just, you know what, right. just purely as a comedian, I would love for her to get nominated right. and for Donald Trump to call her Pocahontas <laughs> in a presidential <laughs> debate. Right. Yeah. Just destroy her. Um, <laughs> So, uh, do you, I mean, you talk about Joe Biden as a not unifier, but certainly right. someone. Do you think this is kind of the the people who are likely to be successful now? We've had maybe a period of time where it took someone like Nigel Farage to to break through on on Brexit. It took someone like Donald Trump to break through in America on some of these issues. But now <coughs> the people who are going to start to be successful are the kind of people who can do that. Let's say you know move left on economics and stay right on culture or move right on economics and move right on culture and stay left on economics. Like the kind of people who can come to the middle and bring people in from both sides. Is that going to be the type of politician that is going to be successful going forward? Well, yeah, and we've, we've already seen a lot of that. So the center right has really done what you've just talked about. Mm. Sebastian Kurtz in Austria, uh, Mark Rutte in the Netherlands, even Theresa May. I mean, you know, I, but, but <laughs> she, she was a great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but essentially taking on Brexit, taking the mantle of Brexit on from the Brexit party or from UKIP, making it part of a center right mm. offer. Um, so the center right has been quite successful in absorbing the energies of the populist right. Um, now, the question of how you overcome polarization is a different one, right? So th- this is more the center right ad- moving into the center of where the votes are by adopting parts of the populist right platform and not the sort of other parts of it. Um, but in order to over- overcome polarization, I think, again, we get to this problem of the stickiness of the cultural left, which is related to po- political correctness, which is preventing the left-wing parties from moving to the center, because if they move to the center and the right moves to the center, we're then moving into a more unified situation, right? And, and, and the politics of the center and of the swing voter becomes much more possible rather than the politics of appealing to the fringes and the base uh, or the activists. Um, but the pro- there are two problems here. One is, and, and I mentioned this in the book, is this backdrop of demographic shifting, which I think is very important. You know, the U.S. case, um, you know, roughly 80, 85 percent non-Hispanic white in, in 1960, and it's now about 60 percent, and it's going to be below 50 percent by 2050, let's say. That kind of process is well underway in in say, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. It's not taking place quite as fast in Europe, but it is, but certainly we're going to probably see ethnic majorities in the minority by the end of this century in the main immigrant receiving West European countries. So that sh- we're at the beginning of a process where these more diverse electorates, what this means is you are starting to get a kind of response from voters who say, we want this change to occur not as quickly. We want to have time to assimilate people and probably through intermarriage in a deep way. Uh, versus the people who say, no, diversity is great and we want more diversity. That is becoming a fault line. And this is this culture, uh, the, the, the cultural fault line that is reconfiguring Western politics, taking over from the economic left, right? So this, this kind of idea of are you pro-diversity and change or are you in favor of slower change? Not as, as some, some people would accuse them of, of not ethno-nationalism and com- white exclusion, but simply slower, not, not zero, right? So slower change, and less diversity in the sense that you want time for assimilation to take place. 
that is kind of the dividing line. Um, but that's a very hard thing for if you are ideologically committed. If you if, if diversity is a sacred value to you, mm -hmm. then you can't compromise on it. So sacred values are by definition values you cannot compromise on, and that means that it's going to be really, really, really hard for the left to compromise on these issues and move to the center. That then means that there's going to be this response from the other side. And, and then, if, especially if that's a populist response, you're then going to further get entrenchment, as we've seen with this great awakening between 2016 and 2018 in the U.S. survey data. You can see, for example, the number of white liberals supporting higher levels of immigration shooting up, like doubling up to 60%. They want more immigration, right? Okay. This is at a time when border apprehensions have doubled and there's all kinds of things. You know, so... so so this question of um, one side reacting to the other and the other reacting to the other is, is and how you break that cycle. The only way I can see it being broken is if, and I think really responsibility here has to lie with those who are pushing political correctness because that is what is preventing the system from adjusting. It's like a, a monkey wrench in the machinery and it's preventing people having a rational conversation about the pace of immigration, the the issue of assimilation and national identity. Um, because that's seen as a, uh, a sacred value, you're either for it or against it. It's black and white binary. We can't have the kind of nuanced shades of gray question about, do we want slower or faster instead of zero or 100? You know, that, that is the way the issue is framed. So um, I think that until we get there, until we overcome these political correct barriers to uh, debate, we're not going to be able to compromise on these questions and they will be cast in very kind of zero sum. You're a racist or you're a rootless globalist cosmopolitan. You know, that, that, that sort of <laughs> yeah. very binary way, which is very unproductive. Yeah, I do yeah. like to hear, though, that the Latinos are fucking their way to victory. <laughs> <laughs> your people are doing well. Yeah. Yeah. well yes. Both your people are doing well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess we all can claim, we could both claim yeah. Latino. Yeah, we are, we yeah, are great yeah. lovers. Yeah. All right. And incredibly right. virile. Well, that's not what your girlfriend tells me, but anyway. Uh, but... Um, you, you, it's, so basically what you're saying, Eric, and just to, to extract the theme of what you're saying, what I'm talking about is essentially a left of center politician who comes in and goes, we're going to stick with our economic policies, right. but we're going to be more sensitive to the fact that our traditional base, working people up north, outside the big metropolitan cities, the university towns, what they want is you know reduced levels of immigration for a period of time so people can come, they can settle down, they can learn the language, they right. can be assimilated. Uh, someone like that, is, according to what you're saying, is in the current environment, could not be successful in, let's say, the Labour Party or the Democratic Party because they would be called racist, as Joe Biden has been. Right, right. That's what you're saying, which is, that is the monkey wrench, as you put it, that is the constraining fact in the system that prevents a credible <coughs> left-of-center alternative to what we now see as uh, a kind of center-right politics infused with elements of right-wing populism. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and of course, immigration is the key issue, but also there are questions around national identity. Mm. I mean, is the United States defined by slavery and the sins of, of mm. conquering the land from the Native Americans? I mean, if you are going to take that approach to the American past and, and reparations and all that. So, so it's also about the question of patriotism, of national identity. Is Britain just defined by sins to do with colonialism, for example? You know, there has to be a leader that 
resists that and says, yes, that is part of the past, but there are all these great things, and this is what I'm going to talk about is more the great things. Uh, you know, that would be the kind of emphasis that you would need to break through to kind of be that unifying figure that would, that would say, you know, of course we're going to admit the sins of the past, but, but that's not what we're going to focus on when, when we get up in the morning as a country, and that's not what defines us, right? Just that kind of a tone that would be uh, more unifying and that would sort of speak to different uh, groups in the population that would also I- accept that not wanting the culture to shift as quickly is a valid thing. It doesn't make you a racist. You know, that sort of a figure. I, you know, I try to imagine that kind of politics occurring very difficult, right? I mean, it's it's very difficult because the nature of the high culture, which through the universities, through influencing the top levels of the parties and the activists, is very powerful. And it is all essentially about um, excavating these grievances and, and, and focusing on um, injustices of the past and, and essentially magnifying the meaning of terms such as racism because that gets you sort of points as being a virtuous person. Somehow we've got to break that in the high culture move it back towards something that still calls out real racism. You know, we're still going to be very, we are, of course, going to focus on real instances that are evidence-based and, and definitionally tight, but we're not going to just broad brush. And, and of course, the right does this, too, to some extent with anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, the Labour Party, you know, there are anti-Semites in the Labour Party, and, and perhaps at the very top there may be some uh, anti-Semites, right? But, you know, to say that the Labour Party is anti-Semitic, I, I just don't, agree with that sort of framing. I think that's that's not accurate. And I, I think we have to have tight definitions. Uh, we have to have evidence for the claims and we shouldn't overscope these claims. Or it just, I think, just increases polarization and reduces the quality of government that we have. Do you think what America actually needs, weirdly enough, despite his flaws, is sort of a Clinton or Obama-like figure? Someone who'll come along, who'll be more reasonable, who'll be more sort of, you know, in the center and actually somebody who can really unify and can talk to both sides in the way that Clinton and Obama could. Well, there was an yes, amazing clip yeah. of Obama from, I think, 2006 or eight or something, <coughs> where he's talking about the, the border. Yes. And someone's yeah. literally put a clip of him next to a clip of Trump, and they're, they're saying the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, Obama and Clinton were both um, in the center on the issue of immigration and mm. the border. Mm. They were both in favor of enforcement in favor of reducing, uh, you know, illegal immigrant, the, the number of people coming across the border. Uh, you know, they're very sensible on these issues and they were very much the unifier. I'm not saying that there are, there, obviously there are some wing nuts who, who claim that Obama wasn't born in the United States, etc. So you're always going to get the nuts. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think they were effective and you could see it in their election, uh, you know, victories mm. that, that a lot of people voted for them. What happens, however, I would say is that in the last couple of years, of the Obama administration, he sort of succumbs to pressure from the more, the people who want to defy, who want to get out on the streets and protest mm. when you deport people. And he sort of, now you could argue that it was because the 2014 immigration uh, reform package failed that the Republicans didn't buy into the, the package of stronger enforcement with path to citizenship. And then he said, okay, well, if I haven't got this, I'll just go for it. I might as well please my base. But regardless, it was the base that kind of pushed the Obama administration in the direction of uh, lax border enforcement, and and which which is sort of the backdrop for the rise of Trump, of course, mm-hmm. which is post you know mid twenty fourteen with the first big wave of Central American mothers and children coming to the border, uh, again to exp- you know 
and quite smartly, I would do the same thing as them, you know, uh, <laughs> that they know that the laws are such that if you come as a mother or child, you can, you've got a much better chance hmm. of, of, of staying in. Uh, but essentially not addressing the loopholes in, in the legislation that allowed that serve as a kind of magnet for, for these people to come in larger and larger numbers uh, was kind of a backdrop for, for allowing Trump then to exploit that issue. So the, so the salience, the importance of the immigration issue for Republicans was at an unprecedented high level between mid-2014 and when Trump was nominated. And, and, it, and, and also in the general election, you could see a lot of the non-voters or Obama voters um, who were concerned about immigration. Those were the people that switched to Trump, right? So he really drew in um, people on that issue. Uh, but that was only made possible, I would argue, in part because of the pressure from the uh, the, you, know, you call them woke activists or people who want to define border enforcement as racism or as beyond the pale. I mean, they, they really sort of handcuffed Obama and, and made it, you know, essentially opened the field for somebody on the other side who was willing to break the taboo. Because there was a taboo on the Republican side, too, mm. and in the right wing media on Fox News. They didn't want to talk about immigration as the central thing either. Mm. And so Trump had a wide open field, 17 candidates, he was the only one who was willing to make this the central feature of his pitch. Uh, and so that is, you know, this is the key reason why he's in power. So it, a lot of these things are connected to, again, these limits on public discourse, the Overton window of what's acceptable to talk about and not to talk about. Of course, we still need the Everton window, right? So there was a politician called George Wallace in the 60s who wanted segregation. Mm. Uh, you don't, you know, so there, of course, we need a, the main parties should not go there. They shouldn't touch segregation. But something quite different with an issue like immigration and enforcement of the border, which is a perfectly reasonable thing from a liberal point of view to, to, to enforce. It's the kind of, again, the expansion of the meaning of racism from something like segregation, which absolutely falls very clearly within the meaning of not treating people equally on the basis of race to something like immigration, which is something completely different. It has to do with the relationship of the nation to the world outside it, which is a very different uh, relationship. Mm. Well, as someone who works with the Venezuelan, I have to say, not, let, <laughs> right. not letting Latinos is a great idea. So let's make sure, build the wall is what I'm saying. But Costa Ricans are okay. <laughs> yeah, Costa Ricans, <laughs> you're, you're very well. Uh, Eric, we're out of time. Uh, and uh, it's been a brilliant interview, as always. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Make sure you get White Shift, Eric's book. It's out in paperback now. It's brilliant. I remember reading it with great interest. And you talk a lot about the demography side of things, which right. kind of underpins a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. But our last question always is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we ought to be talking about? Well, I think what if Trump loses is, is one question I haven't seen written about much. So what if he loses? What's going to happen to polarization on the right? Uh, especially, you know, so I think that I would like to see someone think about that question of what is the Republican opposition going to be like in a world where they're out of power, um, especially if they're out of power multiple elections for demographic reasons. What does that mean? And what does that might that mean in terms of the risk of, of terrorism, for example? Now, there may be no risk of terrorism, but I think it's something that I haven't seen anyone write about and would be interesting to see. And what do you think would happen if he was to lose? Um, I think what would happen is if he was to lose, especially if for demographic reasons, the Republicans and particularly the kind of border control republicanism that Trump represents, if that were to be sidelined, 
permanent, almost permanently, then I think you've got a, a more risky situation. I think that what will happen is that the Senate, which is based on territory and therefore favors more, you know, the, the more white dominated states would become the kind of center of this kind of resistance. And then the Fox News and the right wing media would be kind of taking it up a notch in terms of attacks. I think it would be a very unhealthy situation where I think the polarization would get even worse. Right. Um, Go Trump. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that I... Not We're going to put that right across there. <laughs> yeah. Not that I want Trump in, but I'm saying that um, a situation where, where they are permanently out of the president's... Mm. That is, yeah. under, is potentially a dangerous one. And I think Yasha Monk, who's clearly on the left, has, has said something similar, that mm. it's not enough to attack... This this guy, you actually have to have a vision that is unifying, uh, yeah. and that's lacking. That's so we're going to call this episode <laughs> Eric Kaufman Make America Great Again. <laughs> uh, no, but you're right. I, yeah. I do. I think that's what we need. We need people to start finding a way of coming together because right. th this is not sustainable. And as you hint at, the consequences of this polarization at some point potentially could go from conversations to actual physical confrontation and that's very dangerous yeah yeah absolutely and i think that i mean i don't want to over you know overdraw this i think fear mongering is not a good mm. idea either but i think that you got to play small, the move forward no, Eric. Yeah, yeah yeah i know play right. the move forward right, right. Yeah. but I, I i think yeah i think that the risk of of again small scale yeah. um, you know attacks might go up i mean that seems to be a pattern we know for example that there's an inverse relationship between how well populist right parties do and how many sort of white nationalist terror attacks there are. This is a kind of inversely related phenomenon. So we might expect there to be more such attacks when the when the populist isn't doing as well, which is not by any means a, a reason for the populist to be in power. <laughs> okay. Well, there we All go. Right. Uh, so thank you very much for watching. Uh, make sure you follow Eric, get his book, White Chips. Follow him on Twitter at E.P. Kaufman. Uh, at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Yeah, there you go, EPCAF. Uh, and uh, as always, follow us at TriggerPod. We'll see you in a week with another brilliant episode. Take care. See you next week, guys.